Hello, welcome to episode 15 of the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast. I'm your host, Becky Lewis, and on today's episode, I'm joined with my colleague and co-host for the month, Brandi Turner. In this episode, we're going to be talking about summer learning loss and the projected impact that the COVID-19 pandemic is going to have on that loss. Welcome to the West Virginia Leaders of Literacy podcast, where we engage in educational conversations to strengthen early literacy in West Virginia. Are you ready to become a leader of literacy? Hello, listeners. I am so thankful to have Brandy Turner joining me again. Brandy is going to be co-hosting with me this month, and I'm just so grateful you're here again, Brandy. Thank you, Becky. I am so excited to be back, actually. So today we're discussing an issue that I think every educator experiences at the start of a new school year, and that is summer learning loss. Yes, you know, I've been thinking about it, and this summer learning loss, it doesn't just impact educators, and I think that's why it is such a focus issue, is it impacts uh, the whole school district, it impacts our state as a whole, the communities, because what happens is what we're seeing through our work of the Campaign for Grade Level Reading, which we focus on that reading achievement gap, a large part is dedicated towards supporting county community organizations and school districts as they develop plans to provide students engaging educational experiences over the summer months. And that doesn't always just fall on the school system. So while we tend to think about the teachers in in the scenario, we also need to think about how that summer learning loss is impacting local organizations that help provide the support over the summer. Right. And I want to take a really quick minute just to define summer learning loss for listeners who just might be unfamiliar. So summer learning loss, or it's also referred to as the summer slide, is an educational phenomenon where students lose this knowledge and skills and just ability that they've acquired over the school year during the non-instructional time. And what research indicates is that about one month of learning is lost after summer vacation for some students. Yes, thank you so much for providing that background and the definition. That statistic is so alarming for so many reasons. What it's saying is that loss is during typical times, but with this pandemic, there is obviously nothing typical about what we are experiencing. And, you know, obviously those losses differ too from one student to another, depending on their home environment, opportunities they have over the summer, Um, And, you know, while we certainly don't want to stereotype families, research shows that our low-income families spend less time at home reading and talking with their children. So, you know, they have limited resources to provide experiences outside of the home, which many of our families aren't doing at this time because of the pandemic. And so while that statistic Um, hits the low-income families the most. Right now, I feel like it's hitting all of our families. And, you know, it's just that loss is the greatest for those students who have little exposure to books and experiences and meaningful conversations and um, things such as summer camps or museum visits. Uh, These are not opportunities that all children have. And 
what's interesting, like I said, is even some of our more affluent families aren't doing these things because of the pandemic. And I've also read research outside of the pandemic that some of our families that might not be considered impacted by summer learning loss, those children might be because their schedules are so busy during your typical summer months. They're not sitting down with family members and having dinner conversations because they have ball practice and they have this recital and that um, scheduled Mm -hmm. event. So it's really just amazing the impact that interactions have on learning and how we sometimes overlook our everyday circumstances. So typically six weeks at the beginning of the school year is spent relearning old material to make up for this potential learning loss. Right. And I want to go back to that idea really quickly of that huge impact it has on our low-income families. And our state is comprised mostly of low-income families, so it really, really affects our students here. Absolutely. And Cooper and I and some of their other colleagues completed this huge meta-analysis in 1996 that confirms these findings for reading. And what it specifically found was that family income made a difference in absolute and relative gains and losses during that summer learning time. And this was especially true for reading. And what it showed was a three-month difference in learning and reading skills between middle-income and lower-income families or children over the summer. So children from the lower income families lost on average more learning specifically in their reading comprehension area and word recognition than children from that higher income families. And what the research also suggests is that summer learning loss is cumulative. So let's put that in perspective. If we were a child entering kindergarten already behind and then we experience summer learning loss. Um, They're getting no support at home or extra intervention. So by the time they exit elementary school, they could be as far as 18 months behind their peers in terms of reading achievement. That is amazing. Yeah, so not only are they falling behind, but they're spending much of the time at the beginning of each school year behind at a slower pace and it really, hinders that pace of learning new information. And unfortunately, what researchers are finding right now is that the impact that these school closures will cause due to COVID-19 will increase this gap even greater than it already is. Yeah, you know, I was reading the research from NWEA the other day. They've done some preliminary estimates that suggest that In the fall of 2020, so this coming fall, roughly a 30% learning loss will be evident in reading and a 50% in math. That's half the school year of learning loss. And so just thinking about that, actually just got goosebumps just saying that out loud. And what's even more alarming is that the impact on those students who already would have been impacted by your typical learning loss will be even greater. And like you said, that cumulative effect is going to be compounded even more. And so in some instances, they're finding that students will be nearly a full year behind what they would observe in normal conditions. 
wow, those numbers are just unbelievable. Another setback that I think that we can see in terms of summer learning loss is you touched on it a little bit ago, is that many of those educational opportunities for students and families are closed, but not just going on vacation in museums, but also the organizations that typically support students' educational development during the summer months are either closed at this point or they're in the process of modifying their programming options and schedules. Yeah, you know, it's unfortunately the case for many summer service providers. I know you and I are working with an organization right now to provide support to their team, and they are modifying their programming to an online platform and or mail delivery. And so clearly that is not going to be as beneficial for students as an in-person hands-on experience. Um, I, I haven't heard uh, from all the organizations across the state about what their final decisions are. But, you know, as those options turn up, I think it just provides families an uncertainty of what to expect. And especially those families who attend these summer programs who are struggling with it the most. Right. And I know all of this sounds very dismal, But what is hopeful about this whole situation is that experts around the world are working to really support schools and how they can address these challenges that we're facing now. So schools should know that they are not alone in this and that there is help out there. Right. And I know our team has been working really hard to support counties in their reentry plans for the fall. But Brandy, I know you've done some reading and I want you, um, if you can, to tell us what do experts recommend should be the focus in um, a scenario where we're going back to either remote learning or a slow reentry plan? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, there are so many people working both um, behind the scenes and uh, directly with schools to, to help think about what to consider. So you're right, like, this is a trying time, but we don't want to let that get us down because there is help out there. And, you know, what the experts are saying and what I'm reading is that first and foremost, schools should focus on putting a team together in order to develop a plan. Uh, We know that the situation is ever-changing and that the plans might have to shift, but what would happen is it's important to get ahead of what might happen so that they can plan for any scenario that might happen, whether it's a partial virtual schooling or all virtual or all in-person, whatever it might look like, provide uh, a plan for each scenario so that when the time comes, they're not scrambling to make a plan because that's when things fall through the cracks. And, you know, really that plan, what I'm reading, should focus on accelerating students' learning instead of remediating their learning. Because if schools spend too much time focusing on the standards that may have been missed from the previous grade, then they will never catch up. And that's true. Going back to looking at John Hattie's research, uh, I know that his effect sizes are out there and he has those scales. And remediation is really, really, really low on the effect size of actually having an impact on achievement. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been doing reading about how even though many schools are on summer break right now, 
some schools are continuing to provide quality resources and support so that students can continue the learning and hopefully lessen that gap. And some districts that I'm familiar with are providing links to online field trips for students to explore a specific location that might address a standard, either previous or building one, building knowledge and vocabulary for the upcoming year. And I know that in Wood County, they're providing books for all their students from kindergarten through 12th grade, along with activities and supplies to help the students to engage with those books at a deeper level, other than just reading the book and doing nothing else. Oh, with that's it. awesome. I didn't realize they were doing that. Good, good for them. Um, you know, in the fall, it's going to be vital that schools determine a way, like, you know, you mentioned, uh, that gap that students might have. So what we need to do as a school system is determine a way to collect data where we know where the students are in regards to those core content areas. And so they can yes. determine those gaps, not so that we can go back and necessarily remediate all of those gaps, because I, like I said earlier, it's, it's going to be impossible for us to catch up with that. But so that they can take that data and move forward with the current year's grade level content. And so we don't, what we don't want is for teachers to not have the data and then inevitably just revert back to the previous year's standards because they think the students missed so much of them. Um, we want them to address the current grade level's content and then think about what gaps the students have that might be a prerequisite for that content so that they can address those gaps and then move on. You're absolutely right. And I think this is a difficult position for teachers to be in because without the data, they won't know where to go. And the focus really needs to be on building knowledge of the current grade level expectations and standards. And that idea will um, be to provide students with additional supports and scaffolds in order for them to master those grade level standards without going backwards to teach those previous grade level standards like you right. mentioned. And I know when I started out in the classroom um, every year, I had students who had not mastered the previous grade levels standards before. And it was really hard in my first couple of years of teaching when I saw those holes not to go backward to fill those holes sure. because I quickly realized if I did and I continued on that path, I would never teach. I was in fourth grade at that time. I would never teach fourth grade standards that my students needed because they hadn't mastered the third grade standards. And then the students who had mastered the third grade standards while I was going back and filling holes weren't being challenged or accelerated or even working on grade level because I was going so slowly to fill in those right, holes. Right, exactly. So I really, yeah, quickly realized how to prioritize my standards and figure out how to provide scaffolds along with differentiation and small group instruction to help those students with the gaps to master the grade level re requirements. In that first year, I also learned how important it was to let my standards drive my instruction. I feel like when school starts back up in the fall, teachers will find a larger majority of their students are behind and may have not mastered many of those previous grade level standards because we've been out for mm -hmm. so long and we had that remote learning situation and we might not have been 
as effective at it as what we would have been in the classroom. So I think it's really critical to remember that mastering the current grade level standards is our ultimate goal of instruction and that providing students with the means to reach those standards is even more crucial now than it has been in the past. You're so right. And I'm glad you brought up the idea of differentiation. This will be an important piece of the learning that will need to take place this fall like you said, more than ever. Um, We all know that differentiation is best practice and teaching students according to their individual needs and their individual levels. But, you know, teachers across the state will need to employ the strategy in order to meet all the variations that they're going to find when they return to school. We know that the idea of differentiation isn't a new practice necessarily in education, but one that is often difficult for teachers to manage and definitely one that can be improved upon in our classrooms. Um, What we're going to want to see is less whole group instruction, not that whole group instruction is not going to be important because, you know, new content is going to need to be delivered, but in order to fill those learning gaps and really provide the scaffolds that students need, small group instruction focusing on their individual levels and individual needs will mm-hmm. ultimately be necessary, really. And I like that you brought up whole group instruction, Brandy, because I think that melding the content areas together this coming year will be another very crucial instructional practice that educators are going to need to bring to the table, mm-hmm. especially if we're faced with another remote learning situation. When we take, for example, science and social studies standards and we integrate those with reading and writing instruction, we're able to accelerate the learning for our students at a much quicker pace and in a shorter amount of time than if we hit all of those content areas separately. And it's a struggle. I was one of those teachers who had a hard time letting go of this box that I put my content areas in due to to grades. I mean, it really boils down to that. You're so right. I I didn't even consider grades. You're so right. Yeah. And eventually, as years of experience went on, I've seen that when I integrated those content areas together more and more, it actually saved me time and effort when it came to grading and to assignments, because all I needed to do was grade the assignment differently for the content area I wanted to take a grade on. Um, And one more point I just want to make really quickly is that when you choose a science or social studies topic to focus on for your reading or writing instruction, you can also find some really rich fiction pieces out there that incorporate those same topics into their plot. So one example I know of off the top of my head, if you're studying fossils, which is a third grade standard, The Magic Treehouse series has a book on dinosaurs that you can read with your students to work on those fiction skills around like plot and characters and genres and themes. Oh, you're you're right on point here, Becky. I think, you know, again, this is not a new concept for educators to um, integrate content area instruction. But yeah, again, it's something that definitely needs to be improved upon in many of our classrooms. And I would not even have considered grades because it's just been so many years since I've been in the classroom that I quickly dismissed the idea of grades because that's always the worst part. (laughs) But you're right. If, If you don't keep things in a box, 
it's hard to do that. Um, you know, when I was in the classroom, I taught uh, second grade and a colleague and I, we were, we were new to the school together. And so we sat down thankfully and planned together. And what we did was we literally took one of our blocks that we had for science and social studies completely Mm -hmm. out of our schedule. And so we could create both a reading block and a writing block. And then we just had one block to meet science and social studies. So what we did was we took all of the content that we had for science and social studies and uh, created a, a guide so that we could connect those with our reading and writing standards. And so when we were in our reading and writing blocks, the content that we used was from our science and social studies curriculum. So just like you're saying, you know, taking that nonfiction content and pulling it into your reading and writing, uh, writing around a topic, reading around a topic exposes those children to uh, the same kind of background knowledge. It increases the times that they see similar vocabulary, which which we know research shows increases their learning of that vocabulary even faster. And then we saved that science and social studies block for our more hands-on experiments or, you know, specific simulations that we needed to, to do for those other content areas. You know, many teachers are already putting these two things into practice. So, you know, as we're talking, I'm sure teachers are thinking, oh my gosh, one more thing that I have to think about. And it, I, I know it sounds overwhelming, but really teachers will just need to be more intentional about providing differentiation opportunities and integrating the content area knowledge. Um, they're already doing some of it. We just need to do it at a different level this coming year. And so that we can focus on accelerated that accelerating that student learning. Right. And I think that's so great that you were able to do that with your teammate. And so that probably took a lot off of your plate, being able to plan with someone else like that and carry the burden. Absolutely. So I don't want us to forget about the social and emotional needs that our students are going to need when they return to school. This has been a traumatic experience for everyone, for students, for teachers and parents. Um, So this is something we really can't ignore. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, not just our teachers, educators in every position of the school system will need to be responsive to both families and students' needs. You know, one thing that I think is often overlooked is that their emotional needs are just as important as their academic needs. You know, we know that um, how children learn is just as important as what they learn, because in order to be successful academically, they need to learn those certain social skills like cooperation and assertiveness and responsibility and self-control. And without those, they're not learning anything. Um, I read an article the other day and, you know, it was talking about how neuroscience has confirmed that our emotional states relate directly to how well we learn and feelings like, and, and just, you know, put yourself in a child's shoes for a minute and think about when you were in school, how many times were you embarrassed? 
How many times were you bored, frustrated, all of those feelings, not just fear, which is what we typically associate that uh, fight or flight mode with, but all of those feelings can spur that brain to enter that fight or flight mode. And that part of your brain that controls your emotions goes into overdrive and it gets in the way of the parts of the brain that stores memories. And so if you're not storing memories during your learning time, you're not learning. And I think this goes back to a couple episodes when we featured Anna Rowe, who is a national trauma expert. She talked about how we can help children learn to identify when they're in these flight and fight modes um, easy and to identify their emotions and feelings that they're experiencing through using that hand model of the brain by Dan Siegel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just not an easy way for only our students to understand, but educators, or even if we teach it to the families, I think it would be really beneficial. Um, But when we teach this to our students, it helps them to begin to take those steps towards self-realization and self-regulation of their emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think now is also the time when that relationship building piece of that social, social emotional needs part is even more vital for educators, students, and families. And I can speak from hosting these special COVID-19 bonus episodes that we featured teachers on that our teachers around the state are finding out how crucial those relationship building pieces are in order to help parents and students be successful during remote learning. And also these episodes had featured how excited the teachers are about new and innovative ways that they are reaching families and the new perspectives that they've gained by getting to know their students and families through these online learning meetings and phone conversations and just the other ways that they have established this connectedness through this unprecedented circumstance. Yeah, you're right. I love to hear these episodes and hear how teachers kind of sound invigorated. I know, um, you know, if we we look at the situation as a whole, it's kind of doom and gloom. But when I hear the teachers and hear in their voices, how excited they are that they were able to, you know, chat with this student or chat with that student or drop this off at the student's house. And, you know, like you said, they're learning all of these new innovative ways to do things. And they are addressing the social emotional needs of their students in the best way that they can right now. And I think That is really exciting to hear. So I encourage anyone that's listening right now to go back and listen to some of those bonus episodes um, because they don't only focus on how teachers are providing content, but also how they're meeting them socially and emotionally as well. Um, And many of our children in West Virginia need this support more than anything else right now. They might not have any other connection to the outside world other than the time that they get to connect with their peers and their teachers. You are absolutely right. And that's a huge thing to remember. Well, we're winding down on time. Okay. So I want to thank you once again for being here today and co-hosting with me this month. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I'm excited um, for our upcoming episode, actually. So I want to ask you one final question as we finish up this episode on Summer Slide. What is one tip or piece of advice that you can give educators focused on summer slide and can help them to continue to develop as those leaders of literacy? 
You know, I think the best way that we can support our families during this time is really giving them grace. And, you know, the same goes with families supporting educators. Everyone right now just needs some grace. Um, It's a tough situation for all of us. And as a parent of an 11 month old who is trying to juggle work and childcare, I can see how overwhelming it can be just to even think about adding a layer of academics on that just blows my mind. So, you know, while I don't want us to stop providing those opportunities for children because it is critical that we continue the learning over the summer, I think that our educational expectations need to be realistic and we just need to give families grace on timeframes and uh, those expectations that we have. For additional information, please visit our website at wbde.us forward slash leaders of literacy and click on the show notes for this episode. Want to learn more about being a leader of literacy? Be sure to like and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single installment. On the next episode, Brandy and I will continue our conversation around summer learning loss and the possible effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on summer learning loss. And we are going to be joined by experts in the field from TNTP, Kate Glover and Bailey Cato Zuprik. You won't want to miss it. Thanks for listening.